he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he esteemed and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was this the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to, to, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offsprings. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now we're going to read from 1 Peter 2, um, verse 11 to 25. It can be found on page 1,220 on the Bible. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deed and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and Gentiles, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Good morning and welcome. Good morning, thank you. Someone's someone's here. Um, gosh, Tom's put me on the spot, get you, giving them warning that you're going to give them question time. It's going to be a good. It's going to be a good experience of realizing that the authority is God's word, and um, I don't have all the answers. But uh, in time, we can press into God's word. Um, how about I pray for us, Heavenly Father? We're so thankful that we do have Your word, and we are thankful so for so many blessings that. Just right now, this morning, we've received, we'll be able to hear from you. We've been able to sing your praises together. And we pray, Father, that as we uh, reflect and dig into this passage, that your spirit might be at work in us so that we might believe you, know that you're good, and that we'd follow in our Savior's footsteps. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Peter's point this morning is quite clear, isn't it? Have a look, verse 13. Verse 13, be subject, that, that word be subject is submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Or down in verse 18, uh, servants be subject, submit to your masters with all respect. Uh, Peter does give us kind of an unqualified command to submit to those here, don't we? His point's clear. If you're a Christian, your life is marked by one of submission. Now, I don't need to uh, say this, but obviously, in our context, that grates us, doesn't it? Um, obviously, that is just so radical and so countercultural. Uh, it raises, as soon as you say the word submission, it kind of raises all sorts of issues for us. Uh, it goes against the very grain of who we're told we are and who we think the mature person is. I remember um, my neighbour during COVID, you know, in COVID, how you got to have all these good conversations with your neighbours because you didn't really have anyone else to chat with, but it was great. Everyone was outside chatting. Um, he, he was reflective with me uh, when he was kind of describing who he was. And he was saying, you know, I, you know, I don't take any 
um, uh, stuff, other words of stuff, from no one. You know, I, I'm the kind of man that just doesn't take it. So if someone asks me, to, I'm just like, nah, not doing that. Uh, now he, you know, he, I think he was, you know, he kind of trying to portray who he was, you know, what it meant to be a person, a man. You know, I just don't take anything from no one. I don't, no one tells me what to do. I'm the captain of my own soul, you know, that kind of idea. Um, and, and, you know, the very idea of someone saying to you, you ought to submit to someone else kind of grates against that idea of who we are. But I think even more than that, and uh, there's a younger generation uh, who now are having this, the assumption is that authorities uh, are bad. I, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you're sensing that. I get this sense that, you know, the institutions and the systems, uh, their default is they're untrustworthy. We can't trust them. Uh, and, you know, there's this kind of power imbalance and we've got to kind of change the power around. Uh, and so, you know, there's things like uh, that go around face like Facebook and social media, like um, this picture here, you know, it's come to the rise of this, Black Lives Matter. We've got the graphic image of George Floyd there from 2020. And so you get this rise of a younger generation that is so committed to the cause of, you know, trying to protest and go against unjust systems uh, and, you know, against police brutality and the systematic racism that we see. And they think that's something we can get behind. You hear, hear from Peter, hang on, what's he saying? <laughs> Submit to every authority? Uh, they, you know, they think um, it's something that we've got to overturn these bad authorities, uh, is unjust. And so the question is, what do we do? What do we do as we read a passage like this? It's so clear what he's saying, yet just goes against so much of within us and what we as a society feel and believe to be good, true and right. Well, we've got a couple of options, don't we? Many uh, Christians have tried to kind of fit the Bible in with where society is at. So how, how can we do that? Well, we can possibly redefine the meaning of the word. You know, submission, it, it doesn't mean kind of yielding your will to that of another. Uh, it more means respect. You know, it's a, I, I can, we can respect them but I don't know if I'm, we can yield our will to them. Uh, the problem with that is that's not the word that Peter uses. Uh, he knows the word for respect. He uses the word submit. Um, another option is we can um, kind of water down what he's saying. It, you know, like we can kind of think, oh, you know, it's more, it's more nuanced than what he's actually saying here. Uh, you know, he's, he, there's, there's exceptions to this. You know, we've got plenty of examples in the Bible of civil disobedience, don't we? I mean, you, Tom started with Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar. He's an example of someone that didn't obey the emperor or the, the king there. Or we've got the Egyptian midwives, or we've got uh, Peter and John in Acts who don't obey the authority. What do they say? We've got to submit to a higher authority. But you know what the issue with that kind of angle is? Peter is absolutely silenced on any kind of, advocating any kind of civil disobedience here. His, his point is actually the exact opposite to that. Uh, his point is we are to submit even when they're ungodly. I mean, another option we can come up with trying to kind of understand what Peter is saying and where we are in society 
is we can kind of play the cultural theology game. I don't know, this is what the game that really smart people play. Uh, and you go to college, our wonderful Moore College, I love it, but you get to read a lot of these guys and you think, what, where are these guys coming from? And what at the moment, and this is why college is so helpful because it helps you to play the game with them, but just show it for what it is. Um, one of the things at the moment is this version of post-colonial interpretation of reading 1 Peter. Now, does anyone have any idea what that is? Good? Good. And look, um, essentially it's, it's, a, it's, a la- it's a later reading of how do we understand the Bible. It's, it's something about where they read the letter to Peter as a letter to colonised people uh, and this is just giving them strategies to help them survive as the oppressed. You know, this is just really giving the powerless uh, strategies to survive uh, in, in survival and resistance and subversion. You know, so, so what he's saying is, they say, is it doesn't apply to us at all today. Because it's actually, you know, if Peter was alive today, he, he, would, he would write a different letter to us in our context uh, and he'd be saying something very different. Uh, you know the problem with that reading? It kind of, it goes against the whole purpose of one Peter, doesn't it? Uh, you know, this is the whole expectation of the letter is that we ought to, as Christians expect to be weird and different in this world uh you know why is that well we follow jesus he's from another world uh and our home isn't here heaven is our home have a look at the opening section uh that we read verse 11 there um verse 11 says beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul see this is the third time peter has told us that christians as sojourners and exiles. You know, we're exiles on this earth. We don't belong here. Uh, Heaven is our home and we're foreigners in a strange land. Uh, Jesus came from another country. He had different values, different cultures, different way of doing things. He came from heaven to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. And that's who you are as a Christian. That's, That's... what we read last week, where Peter has kind of said, you know, we are now the chosen people of God. We're his precious stones, his precious bricks, uh, called out of darkness into light, those who have now received mercy. See, when you've become a Christian, you have radically been changed from the inside out. You're giving a living hope that will never perish, spoil or fade. And so that means you're born into a set of values, norms, and ways of doing things that mean to society and culture will look weird. Are you going to stand out as an alien or a foreigner? I think this is just to say that Peter wants us to expect this to an extent. The message that God has is countercultural because it's a message from the God of the universe for all peoples of all time. And in every different culture, they're going to find every different thing hard and something rubbed up against them. Other cultures don't find submission hard. It's just us in the West that struggle with it. That ought to tell you that there's something maybe going on for our reading of this that we've got a question, doesn't it? I think God wants us to reflect for a moment on ourselves. And so when you come to the Bible and you read, oh, this doesn't seem right, it kind of grates me, uh, and seem to think, oh, maybe I'm thinking differently to God in this matter. You know, that happens to me all the time. And, and sooner or later, one of us is going to have to change our minds. 
normally I'm the one getting humbled here, right? I think this is just, as an aside, just as you read God's word, just don't be so quick to presume that God's wrong and you're right or that our culture's right and society's right and God's wrong on this matter. Just be slow to ask that. Ask the hard questions and push into it. Now, that's all kind of by way of what do we do with this kind of countercultural message. Peter wants us to expect to be countercultural. God is countercultural to our culture in some ways. Now, what well, he wants us to live as aliens and exiles and to live in an honourable and good way. Uh, verse 12 is kind of a foundational verse for the next whole section of 1 Peter. It's a transitional verse where he's kind of outlined all the who we are as God's chosen people. So what does it look to live now in light of that? So have a look at verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, it's interesting, isn't it? Verse 11, he talks about the sinful desires that wage war against our soul. What do we normally think about that? Sex, greed, you know, murder, those kind of things. What Peter is thinking here is pride. He's thinking it's, it's pride of the heart that doesn't want to surrender and submit to any authority. It's the self-will of the heart, the choosing self, that human nature. See, the key to good living, to being honourable, Peter says, is submitting to authority. Have a look at verse 13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So we are told as Christians, for the Lord's sake, to submit to every human institution. Whether it's kind of, you know, our form of government, the Westminster government, where you can kind of vote people in and out, and if you don't like it, there's all these mechanisms that we can change it. Uh, or it's the emperor, a dic- kind of a dictatorship. He says you are to submit to the authorities. And it's not just the kind of top dogs, but it's all those also underneath who are given authority. The politicians, the, the law's parents, pops, teachers, councils, uni lecturers. Peter wants us to be those who willingly choose to submit. We think, yeah, but what if they suck? Hang on, what if they're, what if they're no good? What if they make stupid laws that we don't agree with? Uh, you know, that's, I think, is a part of being an Aussie, isn't it? Grumbling against the sh- stupid laws that make no sense. Isn't that the whole story of COVID? Who are these people making these laws? Look how wrong they get it and it doesn't, doesn't make sense. Think about the context in which Peter is writing that. Peter, you know, under Emperor Nero, he was the Roman ruler who led the great persecution against Christians in the first century. So Christians were blamed uh, for setting light Rome, right? Major fire destroyed a whole section of Rome and uh, they, Christians were heavily persecuted because they, kind of, they persecuted Christians, they thought they um, uh, set it alight. Uh, and it was under Emperor Nero that Peter himself, history says, was uh, crucified, was murdered upside down. But Christians, while they were accused of doing wrong, you know what happened in time as, you know, as, um, as plagues came and, you know, what happens in a plague, everyone runs and gets away from there, but who stayed behind? The Christians. The Christians 
stayed behind, looked after the poor, uh, and it became clear to the Roman Empire that they couldn't really blame the Christians for what they had thought they originally could because they saw their behaviour, they saw that they cared for people, they cared for Rome, and they stayed and cared for the sick and dying. See, their actions silenced their accusations. Uh, here are Christians who were living out the will of God. Have a look at verse 15. He says, why are we to do this? For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, friends, in time, whether on the final day when Jesus returns or in this life, if you submit and do good, people will see it. People would recognise it for what it is. Now, Peter's really quick to point out that while we are Christians, we are to use our freedom for good and not for evil. Have a look at verse 16. He says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. See, what is he saying there? He's saying, in Christ, you are free. You're not a slave to anyone. Because, no, but he says, but use your freedom that Christ has won for you to willingly choose to submit. Not because you must to, not because you're forced to, but because you know God. Because you know that you're free to choose that willingly and you can submit yourselves to others. But he says, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't refuse to submit as a cover-up for your own sinful pride. See, I think to choosing to willingly submit here, as Peter's calling us, means swallowing at pride of ours, doesn't it? See, the issue our culture, one of the issues our culture has with submission, it thinks that to submit is to be weak. Uh, it's to be kind of suppressed or a, a doormat. Uh, you know, a lesser human. I mean, we, we don't like it at all. No one says, when I grow up, I want to be known as the submissive one. Like, who, who says that? Like, you'd just be like, what? If I heard that from my kids, I'd be like, where the heck are you getting that from? Not from school, that's for sure. But it's, who's, it's the proud, it's the boastful one that says, I don't want to listen to anyone. That's the heart of the, the, the heart that doesn't want to think, that doesn't want to submit. But if you think about that, it kind of, we have this view that it's a lesser person. That idea doesn't really fit with Jesus, does it? Because he is the truly great person. He's a truly uh, self-made man. He's a complete person. Uh, and he was the person to walk the planet that his whole life was in submission, wasn't it? He was the one, you know, that's what Peter does. He kind of points us to that in 1, in, in 1 Peter 2 in here. He was the one who came to the world in submission to his father. He does everything out of his father's will, we're told in John. He, he even goes against his own desires almost in, you know, in his final prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's about to suffer that awful death, the judgment of God's wrath. What does he do? He pleads with his father. If there's another way, can you take it away? But if it is your will... Let's go on. He says, not your will, but my, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus, he lived the life of the truly submissive one. But, you know, we don't think he's any less. It didn't make him any less than God. He's still God. It doesn't reduce Jesus down. Uh, he's equal with God, isn't he? But he took on the role of submission. See, if you're willing to submit, it doesn't mean you're less than. But more than just 
Jesus doesn't make sense of how society can get permission. I don't think our life makes sense of it either, does it? Um, you know, we often submit to all sorts of people around us. Just think about this morning. Um, we've all willingly decided to submit to Tom, haven't we? You know, Tom, as he's led the service, what does he do? He's got you to stand up and sit down and to sing particular words at particular times. Um, you know, that's... I, 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 did you ever think, oh, I'm less than Tom? No, we don't think like that in all aspects. There's particular aspects that we think like that. Uh, and you, you, know, you hear what I'm saying? It's like, of course we let Tom tell us what to do. That, that's what it means for us to operate as a group of people. That, that's what it means for us. Yeah, I'll willingly yield and I'll sit down when I'm told. Some of us don't. Some of us don't sing in time or sing the same song. That's okay. You're still welcome with us. <laughs> Pardon? You've taken the names. Well, my kids might not be allowed to come back. But I just, I think that, you know, you never question your own self-worth. Uh, you, you never think, oh, Tom, you know, who does he think he is? <laughs> who does he, how dare he? Does he think he's smarter than me? He is smarter than me. Does he think he's, you know, all these questions, they don't come into your mind because that's how we as a society operate is that we do willingly choose to submit. And it makes no value statement on our self-worth. I just think, you know, we just need to recognise that submission is a normal part of operating in society. And it's actually for our good. Uh, to submit to the road rules is good because it helps us get places safely. It helps us to move around as people. To su submit to police and governments is good. It helps our society order ourselves and live together. To submit to paying taxes is good. It helps us as a society to live together well. It's why rulers are given, aren't they, in verse 14, by God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Uh, Mark Dever, he's uh, from a church in Capitol Hill, uh, he says, almost any government is better than no government. Did you say that? Almost any government is better than no government. It's a bit counterintuitive, isn't it? Really? But I think if you think about a lack of human authority and order combined with a human tendency to sin always ends in chaos, anarchy and evil. When government and authority is given by God for society to function well, it's for our good. Do we, just as an aside, like we, you know, it's the young, I feel like there's a whole stream of people saying that power and authority is are inherently bad. Can I say that's not God's assumption, Peter's assumption here? Uh, it's, it's not that we have to call out power and authority. Jesus was the one with the most power and authority in the whole world, and what did he do with it? He served others. He used it for their good. So the issue isn't the power and the authority. The issue is the sin in the heart of those with it. It's, it's a sin problem. And it's equally a sin problem with the, those with power, but it's equally a sin problem with those who, you know, we might say are oppressed or uh, have to submit. See, it's a, it's a prideful heart that says, I won't allow anyone to tell me what to do. I won't allow anyone to assert themselves on me. You know, I was at uh, Scripture this week, and there was, you know, we have about 15 kids, and there was this um, young boy, I think he's in kindy, who the teacher about five times asked him, to stop and come over. He just kept saying, come. 
And I could just see, everyone in the class, he stopped for about three minutes waiting for this boy to listen and to submit to the teacher. It was a proud, unwilling heart that didn't want to listen to his teacher. The whole class got disrupted for him. It's the child who won't listen to her mum's leadership, who throws a tantrum because she doesn't get her way every time. It's just so ugly, that heart that won't submit to those who are rightly over him. It's a young man who goes through life thinking that he knows everything, won't ever submit or listen to those who know a heck of a lot more and who are in authority over him and listen to his boss. It's so ugly and detrimental to the functioning of society. And I don't think we've done our kids any help uh, in the way we've set them up. We've set them up for a failure that you get to choose everything you want, don't let anyone... And we've just set them up for such a failure uh, and it doesn't do good for our society. Friends, Jesus has saved us from that way of slavery. We don't have to be slaves to that way anymore, from the slave to self-centeredness. We can, we're free from that curse and we can live counterculturally and freely submit to authorities. Now, that plays out in authorities, but it also plays out in the home. So, verse 18, it's the, the servant-master relationship that he's speaking about there. And that servant is the same uh, word for slave. In the first century, um, slavery was very different to what we generally think about slavery today. So, he's not talking about the kind of kidnapping, you know, where you buy and sell and people are as though they're property uh, and, you know, their people are mis treated, abused and killed. No, the, the Rome, in the Roman century, the first century slavery was very different. Uh, slaves were often well educated. Uh, they were employed as managers and helpers in the home. Uh, they were often like um, physicians and tutors to the children in the home. So the Bible is very clear that it condemns slave trading. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.10 put that verse to mind. It condemns that modern form of slavery. Uh, but the Bible... Uh, also was very aware that it existed in the Roman first century, what it looked like, and it acknowledged it, and it spoke God's word into it. It's quite radical, actually, because the Bible spoke to the lowest of society, the slaves, and gave them dignity and told them how they ought to live in the world they're in. Uh, it's also radical, the, the Bible's perspective, is that in church, you'd get the master and the slave drinking the same cup together. Nowhere else would that kind of relationship have been formed in that society. Uh, but here, Peter radically wants to urge slaves, to urge servants, to use their God-given freedom to serve their master wholeheartedly. Have a look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. See, notice what it's, the serving is not tied to. It's not be, he, doesn't ser, he doesn't submit to the boss because he's a good boss, or he doesn't submit to the master because he's a great boss. Uh, even those that are unjust, it says, submit with all respect to your master. The term unjust there isn't kind of a, the justice sense. It's, it literally means crooked. Uh, so it means, you know, they're most likely just dodgy. You know, they're, they're most likely a cheat, the, the dodgy ones that take kind of every opportunity to get ahead and walk over people to get ahead. Now, this kind of servant-master relationship 
isn't entirely, like it's, a, it's not entirely the workplace agreement today, I think because the workplace agreement isn't kind of, in our context, you can leave. Often if you don't like it, you can leave and get out. Uh, it's more, they're more bound uh, in the, that relationship. But it's still, the principles still apply to that context, I think. Because he calls us to use our freedoms to serve those above us, our masters wholeheartedly. And as long as you have a master, serve him willingly, joyfully. Now, I do think this doesn't mean doing, it doesn't always mean doing exactly what the, your unjust boss says. Because here a slave is first bound to God. And if the boss asks you to do something that's contrary to God, or that, you know, that's crooked and dodgy, that God would not want you to do, a slave is first bound to God and to do the good that God wants. So submission here might actually look the opposite of doing what they say, but doing good and bearing the consequences for it and bearing the suffering that comes from doing good. See, friends, it's a hard word, isn't it? How, is it to, how can we live this countercultural way? How is it possible? Well, I think we have to remember the bigger picture. It's with respect to God that we have a hope out of this world. Have a look at verse 19 there. It says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and, and you endure, this is a gracious thing inside of God. See, hear he, what he's saying. He's saying, if you're a Christian and your supervisor is getting on you about your lack of quality of your work or being late or having an unprofessional mindset and attitude, uh, that's not unjust suffering. He's saying, you, you're getting what you deserve. But he says, if conscious of God and you work hard, diligently, uh, you, you come in a timely manner, you're professional, uh, but your supervisor uses you as the butt of all their jokes, discriminates against you, uh, credits others with your work and passes you over for promotion because of your faith, this is the unjust suffering that Peter's talking about here. And he says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, living radically different in that circumstances may not mean you advance in this life but before God, he says, he sees it, he recognises it, and you'll get your reward. And it's not just those uh, living in, with unjust masters. He said every Christian has actually been called to endure unjust suffering. Have a look at verse 21 there. He says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, here, you know, the language of call, he's not called to leadership, not called to be a doctor or marry this person. Here we are called to endure suffering for Jesus' sake. Wow, now that's a whole other talk there, isn't it? Countercultural. Wow. I, friends, I think it's a lie that many of us have swallowed that you think if we live a good Christian life, you know, if we kind of, uh, in, in this society... You know, we read our Bibles, go to church, but we, we live morally well, that life will be comfortable, people will respect us, and we'll be able to talk about our issues and there'll be mutual respect with each other. What Peter is saying, if you want to live the Christian life well, that is not going to happen. 
and that exact, the exact opposite will happen, that suffering will come. See, how is it that we are to keep going in this? Well, we're to look to Christ, aren't we? See, Christ's innocent sufferings become the pattern, the standard by which we are to follow in his footsteps. Uh, he, Peter kind of echoes, we read that passage in Isaiah, he echoes that which is about Jesus. See, Jesus is the only one who truly suffers innocently. Have a look at verse 22. It says, He committed no sin, it's Jesus, neither was deceit found in his mouth. See, here's one who's truly sinless. Uh, he's in a class of his own. None of us can truly say that. Verse 23, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, the truly powerful one, who could have silenced his accusers at any moment, went to his death like a lamb to the slaughter. And the only sin found on him was the sin of yours and mine. Verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Why did he do that? He died on the cross so that he might heal those sinners. See, this is the core of the Christian message, this sweet exchange where the sinful people get the righteousness of God and the one who is truly innocent, truly sinless, takes on our sin and guilt. Why do you do that? Well, he did that to bring us back to God. Verse 25, he says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, here's the point. Why did Jesus do all that? Well, he didn't go all the, through that unjust suffering so that we as Christians can continue to live in a pridefully arrogant, self-asserting life, asserting our rights beyond every point. No, Jesus died to free us from that kind of slavery to sin. But he, he died that, that kind of, free us from that kind of way of living and he died as a model that we might follow in his footsteps so that we might endure suffering unjustly. And we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. How did he do that? Verse 23, he, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, Jesus himself trusted himself to his father, who, justes, who judges justly and was bringing in eternity. Uh, the suffering he endured was just for a little while. He had eternity in his mind. He knew heaven was his home. Friends, we don't have to get everything in this life. We have eternity to look forward to and that is our living hope that God has given us. So we're free from the need to try and get everything here and now and we can live for him. Uh, I want to finish with uh, Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer? Cranmer, I don't know how to say it. Cranmer. I probably said it wrong. Uh, he's, he's kind of the, um, he wrote uh, a bunch of the founding Anglican uh, documents uh, in the time of the Reformation. And in his final speech, uh, before he was burnt alive uh, by Queen Mary, uh, formerly known, well, known as Bloody Mary, uh, this is what he said, this is, this is March 21st, 1556. So he kind of has a speech, this is the second point. The second exhortation is that unto God... You obey your king and queen willingly and gladly, without murmur and grudging, and not for fear of them only, but much more of the fear of God, knowing that they be God's ministers 
appointed by God to rule and govern you. And therefore, whosoever resists them, resists God's ordinances. Wow. Moments before the fire is alight, moments before walking into the fire, this is his second point. Obey the queen. Uh, wow, so countercultural, right? So inspiring. How can he say this? Well, for the Lord's sake. He had a healthy fear of God. He knows that this life isn't it. He had a hope and he lived so countercultural at the point of death. His first point is this. Have a look at this. Oh, can you read that? This is his first point. First, it is in a heavy case to see that many folks be so much doted upon the love of this false world and so careful for it that for the love of God or for the love of the world to come, they seem to care very little or nothing therefore. This shall be my first exhortation, that you set not much over, sorry, you set not over much by this false glossing world, but upon God and the world to come. And to learn to know that this lesson that St. John teaches, that the love of this world is hatred against God. Kind of makes you proud to be an Anglican, doesn't it? Wow. I want to finish there because here is someone that knew this world was passing. He knew that heaven was his home. He had his eyes fixed on Jesus. And it meant that that would endure suffering for him. That example does kind of bring a little perspective to the things that we whinge about, doesn't it? And complain about. Let us uh, reflect on that and uh, inspire us to submit for the sake of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful uh, for the Lord Jesus that he did suffer as the innocent one. Thank you that he did that for us in our place. Father, we pray that in the strength of the Spirit that we might follow in his footsteps that we might live countercultural, radical lives and submit willingly and joyfully. Thanks for the saints that have followed in Jesus' steps before us and we pray that we might in our day do the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.